0: has been long COVID and what causes it. Studies have found that about 10 to 20% of people that have recovered from the coronavirus do get long COVID, which can appear up to three months after recovery and lasts for six months or more in some cases. Researchers are zeroing in on the causes and the two leading theories are that the virus turns the immune system against the body and then despite recovering, the virus could be lingering in the body, not in the blood, but in the body's tissues. For more on what could be behind long COVID, we'll speak to Yasmin Tayag, contributor to Vox.
1: One of the big challenges with long COVID research is that there are so many symptoms to account for. And scientists have had to figure out what is the root biological cause behind all of them. And one of the things that's been helpful is understanding that there is no one long COVID. There's probably many different subtypes of this condition that we're calling one COVID. And so with that in mind, they're teasing out the different drivers. So as you mentioned, one of the big ones is the immune system. And this was suspected long ago um, at the beginning of long COVID research. They think that uh, because of the initial infection, the immune system in some people is just going haywire. Either it's reacting too strongly or more likely it's reacting against the self. So the body's own immune system starts attacking its own cells. And that is what's behind some of the symptoms we're seeing, such as uh, brain fog or blood clots that are being seen throughout the blood. Um, So that's one potential uh, driver. And the other one, as you mentioned, the other big suspect is the possible persistence of virus in the system. So this is simply that the virus doesn't entirely get eliminated after your initial infection. And it's just hanging out in the body. And one of the difficult things uh, about studying this is that scientists are finding that the virus, when it does linger, it's not really in the blood. It tends to hang out inside the tissues. And so you're not gonna catch this with a simple blood test. Uh, they're now developing diagnostics to find these markers that, you know, would otherwise go unnoticed. Right. Um, but lingering virus is, they're not really sure what it's doing. It might not be doing anything, but it all, might also be injuring tissues directly or leaking virus proteins into the bloodstream, which go on to activate the immune system or they might be triggering inflammation in the brain by traveling up the vagus nerve. So scientists are trying to tease out all these different, different drivers. And what complicates the matter is they're probably all interconnected.
0: Yeah. That's what I was just going to say. I mean, they're kind of related, right? If the virus is lingering and the immune system is constantly picking up signs of it and, you know, throwing antibodies at it, throwing stuff at it to at least address what it's sensing. You know, it's gonna it's gonna keep uh, the immune system in that constant state of flux. Um, a tiny blood clots are also in this. You know, th- that kind of fuels that immune system reaction too. That's another one that they think could make the things persist.
1: Yeah, the blood clots are super interesting. So they're seen in patients with both acute COVID and in patients with long COVID. And um, what scientists in South Africa are finding is that inside these clots, like these clots are really resistant to breaking down. And normally the body is able to do that. But they, the scientists ask, why aren't these clots getting digested? And it's because inside them, hidden inside, are these inflammatory molecules that are sort of preventing this digestion. And they may also be triggering the immune system to react. So, you know, by blowing up these, blood clots to see what's inside, scientists so are getting a better idea of what what yeah. is causing them to stick around.
0: And so these are the kind of the two leading theories, right? It's uh, the immune system and the lingering virus, but they've kind of also identified, I guess, four other criteria that uh, that people might have that could make them uh, suffer from long COVID. And it's kind of some of the stuff that we've heard about before, some of the uh, comorbidities and all that. But basically, if if you had high levels of the virus uh, in your blood when you were infected that can lead to long COVID. You have type 2 diabetes, unfortunately, that could lead to it. Epstein-Barr virus, which uh, I guess 90% of the global population has, it lays dormant in the body. If that gets reactivated, that can make it happen. And then these auto antibodies, which you kind of talked about, things that are just attacking your own cells. So these other four factors could contribute to that as well.
1: Yeah, the recent research, and this is really early research, so it's not really a diagnostic yet. But they think these factors might put certain people at higher risk for long COVID, and they will, you know, possibly be a thing to look out for as scientists try to predict who's most at risk when they're in the early stages of infection.
0: The good thing about this, though, is that while they're doing this research, while they're looking to see what the root causes are a lot of the scientists and researchers are focusing a lot on the treatment of the symptoms and, you know, they feel uh, at least pretty good that they'll have something that'll kind of address some of it, at least to make the symptoms not as, as worse.
1: Yeah. um, You know, there's this one scientist here in New York, David Petrino, who, his background is in rehab therapy and he's finding that some rehab techniques can help people with a lot of the symptoms of long COVID. A lot of the common ones are like, you know, breathing issues or, you know, because uh, the body isn't, you know, at it, working at its best, you know, problems with physical movement. And there's, you know, very slow and patient coaching that can help them recover their breathing, recover their movements. Um, And that's, that's proving to be quite promising, but it doesn't cover all the symptoms. And so, you know, as I talked about before, there are different subsets of this condition that, you know, will probably require different types of treatment. You know, on the other hand, there are also scientists working on, you know, looking at different drugs that might be able to to deal with the symptoms or to deal with the blood clots. And these are all in development, but to to really get them, you know, get these treatments out into the world and helping patients. We all need to have clinical trials, which are expensive. And I think funding is a problem with a lot of long COVID
0: research. Yeah. I mean, just to kind of illustrate how difficult this is and the range of symptoms, right? So the symptoms that uh, people report that have long COVID, there's more than 200 across 10 groups of different organ systems. So there's just a lot of variables really, but I wanted to ask about, Um, Because it was interesting also, they noticed that in people that had long COVID, it kind of didn't matter if you were severely infected. People that had milder symptoms still could come down with it, right? It could come back at you months later. And, you know, that kind of figures into the conversation that we're having with the Omicron variant, where we are seeing a lot more milder cases, but they still don't know. It's just too early to tell if even the Omicron variant can spur some of this long COVID.
1: Yeah, they're really not sure yet. You know, I think they're. It it is seeming more likely that if you have really severe disease that you'll be more likely to uh, end up with long COVID. But again, as you said, people who have been asymptomatic or had really mild cases also end up with long COVID, so they don't know. And with Omicron, you know, it's too early to tell. Omicron's only been around for two months, so nobody's really reporting, quote unquote, long COVID symptoms yet, which happen after three months, Um, but what all of the research I spoke to told me is that regardless of whether Omicron causes, you know, a lower rate of long COVID, the fact that there are so many people with Omicron, you know, means that even a small proportion of those people will still be a big number.
0: This has kind of been one of the biggest mysteries since the start of the pandemic, these ongoing lingering symptoms. They're starting to nail it down, but uh, still a long way to go before we figured out exactly what's happening. Yasmin Tayag, contributor to Vox, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Finally, for this week, Idaho is sitting on one of the most important elements on Earth, cobalt. Cobalt is needed for the production of lithium-ion batteries for use in electric vehicles. And mining companies are beginning to set up operations in what is known as the Idaho Cobalt Belt. It's an interesting development and a look at how the clean energy revolution is reshaping the landscape and posing some environmental risks. Most of the cobalt supply is mined in the Congo and sent to China, so it's important that we're able to mine domestically. For more on how new mining operations are being set up, we'll speak to Michael Holtz contributor to the Atlantic.
2: The Idaho cobalt bill, it's been known about for a long time, and as I write my article, historically, there had been, what at the time in the mid-20th century, the only cobalt operation in the U.S. And then as demand fell off in the late 1950s, that operation got shut down, and it's only more recently As you were explaining, largely because of the EV market, that interest has sort of returned this cobalt belt. And so right now you see six different companies who are at different stages of mining and exploring inside the belt, trying to start operations, including one named Gervois Mining, which will be starting mine operations this this coming July.
0: And, you know, one of the interesting things about it is that we know there's cobalt there, but nobody really knows how much is there. So we do have these six companies that are starting to get involved. And some are, as you mentioned, at different stages. But a lot of other companies that might be getting into this are in this kind of wait and see approach. Let's see how they start doing. Let's see where the price of cobalt is, you know, in a few years. And then we might start seeing a, an even bigger boom of other companies starting to get into the Idaho cobalt belt.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, Gervais, sort of the first company to um, have a mine under construction there. There's another company that's not far behind. But even so, I mean, the former owner of what is now the Gervois mine first started looking into operations in this area going back to around 2010, 2011. And because of the volatility in the cobalt market, it wasn't until recently that economically it actually made sense and was feasible for companies like these that are moving in there to actually open up mines
0: you had a chance to go down there to check out some of these mining sites, the old site that was there previously, the new site that's popping up and being constructed. Tell us about that, where is it located? What does it look like around there? Because the other part of this story, cobalt mining here domestically, is that it definitely changes the landscape. There's a lot of environmental factors that go into it.
2: Yeah, of course, and I mean, that was one of the reasons I was really interested in doing this story, because you're right, it is in central Idaho, it's a part of the country called the Salmon Chalice National Forest. The nearest town is several miles away. It's called, it's called Salmon. But these mines are, you know, really in this remote forest that you have to take gravel and dirt roads down to get. It's a couple hour drive from town to get these operations. And you're right. I mean, the Gervois mine, for example, even just to get to its operations, you have to drive through what is now essentially a Superfund site. This historic Blackbird mine that I mentioned earlier was operating in the 1950s kept operating on and off for several more decades, but then the 1980s um, and early 1990s, there was a a series of of legal battles that led the EPA to eventually designate a a Superfund site.
0: Give us a quick explainer, what is a Superfund site?
2: Sure, so it's a designation that the EPA came up with several decades ago. You'll often see it uh, as a label used for historic mining operations. Basically, any site in the country which has really bad pollution. And the EPA will come in, designated a Superfund site, and then along with that, we'll have all of these requirements put in place that the companies who, who own these different facilities, mine operations, whatever it may be, that they have to follow to ensure that the pollution doesn't get worse and clean up uh, what pollution they, they actually can. And so in the case of Blackbird, I mean, it includes, just to give you some numbers here, a 12-acre open pit, 4.8 million tons of waste rock, two million tons of tailing, and there's enough tunnels <laughs> underneath the the former mine that string route for like you know 14 to 15 miles.
0: Yeah, I mean, so that that illustrates what the environmental impacts are right there. And you know, a lot of uh, people in the industry say things have changed, regulations have changed. It's a little bit sure. better now, but. <laughs> still uh mining you know metals is one of the dirtiest things that we can do so you know this is where, where we have to try to strike that balance right we need cobalt for the lithium ion batteries it, it's big business it's impacts the environment in different ways right cleaner energies cleaner fuels but you know this is the other side of it we need these metals and that creates a lot of damage to the environment
2: yeah and i think that's really where the the rubber meets the road here because you know obviously uh- I think it's 84% of of cobalt right now is coming from the Congo and you know there's you can read all kinds of articles about the human rights violations and pollution that that's caused down there and so you know I think a lot of people perhaps don't realize some of the complicating factors that go into things like electric vehicles on the one hand yes like electric vehicles are the future you see more and more companies moving towards that but there is a cost associated with them if in no other way that uh, you know at at a, at a local level in places like the Cham- Salmon Chalice National Forest,
0: tell me a little bit more about the Blackbird site if you can, and just kind of how it started, how it changed over the years, what's happening now, because it is kind of right there, you know, next to where the new mines are are trying to be set up. Uh, but you know, there's there's a lot of history that goes into that.
2: Sure, yeah. So, I mean, cobalt was first discovered uh, in this region going back to the early 1900s, but it wasn't until the late 1940s, uh, sort of in the early days of the Cold War, that um, the federal government actually subsidized a company that was mining cobalt in this region. And so, like you said earlier, at the time, uh, these metals were mostly used for the production of jet engines. And so for the 1950s, with the help of subsidies from the federal government, this company that was operating the Blackbird mine, became a pretty sizable operation. Uh, And one of the interesting things about it is that there was a company town there just a few miles from the entrance to the mine um, that was actually named Cobalt. And at the height of this town, there was about 1,500 residents living there. Most of the people worked at the mine, their families lived with them. And then in the 1960s, subsidies from the federal government gave away. A few other companies came in, tried to start the mine again but those efforts never really got anywhere and then as i said earlier in the 1980s it finally shut down for good
0: you made mention in the article too you know we look to sites like blackbird and and the little town cobalt that you were just mentioning as cautionary tales just to see what happens that and it proves it right the other companies that are maybe possibly going to be getting into this they're in this wait and see approach let's see how it goes because we could have, you know, some environmental disasters. The mining boom can take off there if the price continues to stay high for cobalt. And then, uh, you know, maybe the, a bust happens, right? It's done. We've tapped what we can and the little town dies, right? I think you made mention they had to tear down a bunch of the homes that were there, burn them down just to get rid of them. And the new mines are setting up little housing units there as well for the miners that will eventually be working there. So, you know, we look to these old stories to possibly see what could be happening again in the future.
2: Now, I do think there is something to be said for how mining has changed since, you know, the 1950s. Practice have improved. There are more regulations in place. I mean, the EPA, for example, didn't even exist back then. But you're right. I mean, there are still risks associated with, with doing this kind of mining. And I feel that it's it's important to actually um, take an honest look at the trade-offs that go along with these sorts of things, because, you know, the EV market is only going to get bigger. And so, metals like cobalt have to come from somewhere, at least, you know, as as lithium-ion batteries are currently designed. And and so it's just important to me, I think, to look at the places that are going to be most affected by that.
0: We're talking about the Idaho cobalt belt and how uh, a few mining operations are just getting started there. You know, just to kind of put it all in perspective, we've been talking about the Congo and how they're the biggest miners of cobalt. They send a lot of it over to China. I think about 85% of what they get, they send to China. How much would we get out of these mining operations here in Idaho?
2: Yeah, so it's it's hard to say right now because the Jervois mine is is the first one that's gonna start operation. And like I said, there's five others that are looking to work in the area, but it's unclear if they're gonna be successful. And so if I remember correctly from my reporting, I think there currently is enough cobalt in the Gervois operation to power, I wanna say 16,000 electric vehicles. So it sounds like a big number, but compared to the cobalt coming out of the, the Congo, it's really just a drop in the bucket.
0: Just an interesting look, you know, uh, one of these things that we need so much as other emerging markets happen, as uh, as we've been talking about, the electric vehicles and the efforts to get it here domestically. But uh, interesting look, I suggest everybody read Michael's piece on it. Michael Holtz, contributor to The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.